to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 30th of August. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. In today's business headlines, business optimism in China has tumbled to an all-time low. According to a new survey from the US-China Business Council, 96% of respondents in the annual survey reported negative effects on their businesses, including halting investment, lost revenues and disruption to supply chains. Companies cited coronavirus-related lockdowns, U.S.-China relations, Beijing's crackdown on Internet platforms and new data security laws as their top concerns. Latest government figures showed private home prices in Hong Kong have fallen to their lowest in two and a half years. According to data from the Rating and Valuation Department, the private domestic price index in July came in at 376.1. That's the lowest reading since February 2020. July's figure was down 1.6% from the month before. The European Union is preparing to intervene in its energy market to dampen soaring power costs and eventually to break the link between gas and electricity prices. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the EU was working on emergency intervention as well as structural reforms to the power market, which could allow cheaper renewable energy to help set electricity prices. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Patrick Bennett from CIBC World Markets and Sunil Kashap at FinMet. With a view from Japan is John Byrne from the Asian Development Bank Institute. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, stocks slid for a second day following Jerome Powell's speech at Jackson Hole. The S&P 500 slipped 0.7% to 4,031. The Dow recovered from losses of over 300 points at the low of the day to briefly turn positive before ending the session 184 points or 0.6% lower at 32,099. The Nasdaq Composite Index dropped 1% to 12,018. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index fell 0.8%. US mar- UK markets were closed for a public holiday. In the Asia-Pacific region, equity indices in Japan shed almost 3% and around 2% lower for Australia and South Korea. Chinese stocks, though, outperformed their Asian peers and recovered some of their losses as the day wore on. The Hang Seng Index sank 1.4% at the low of the day, but closed 147 points or 0.7% lower at 20,023. The Hang Seng Tech Index retreated 1.2%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rebounded from losses of 1.2% to end the day with gains of 0.1% at 3,241. In the commodities markets, Brink crude oil settled over 4% higher at $105.09 a barrel. Copper continued its slide, losing another 2.4%, and gold is unchanged at $1,739 an ounce. Treasury bond prices slid more on Monday and yields rose. 
the US two-year yield climbed as much as eight basis points to 3.48%. That's the highest since November 2007 before retreating to 3.43%. The 10-year yield rose eight basis points to 3.11%. And the US dollar index jumped 0.6% higher during Asian trading, hitting uh, 109.48 for the first time since September 2002 before giving up its gains. The euro rebounded to parity with the dollar. The Japanese yen gained 0.9% to 138.61. Sterling was weaker at $1.17 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 19 cents. And the offshore Chinese yuan dropped 0.6% to above 693 at one stage. That's a new two-year low before rebounding a little. This morning, it's at 6.91 and a half versus the dollar. And Bitcoin is back above $20,000 at $20,200. Looking around Asia-Pacific stocks, we're seeing a small rebound in Australia. The SX200 up 0.1%. Bigger rebound in Japan. Stocks there up about three quarters of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea up 0.8%. Uh, and it looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng at the open in an hour's time or so. Just gone 808. Let's welcome our guest we have with us, Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets. Morning, Patrick. Yeah, good morning, Peter. And also with us, Sunil Kashap, director at FinMet. Morning to you, Sunil. Good morning. Um, let me start with Jackson Hole. We're still seeing. Uh, some of the fallout and the feedback from from that, what Jerome Powell um, had to say on uh, on Friday, um, Patrick, maybe you want to kick off. What what are the key measures you took away from uh, from that speech on Friday, and particularly in terms of implications for the markets? Yeah, look, I think for the first part, I think the market has been very uh, fascinated uh, to try and pick you know, what the terminal rate will be, you know, to try and pick when the Fed will stop raising rates, and the message from them has been quite clear. Uh, that their job is out there to beat inflation, uh, to win that battle. Uh, and if the price of that is recession, if the price of that is the economy slowing, then, then so be it. So I think the key message that uh, should be taken out of it is the idea that you know, the Fed can get to some level within the next few months and then be in a position to be easing rates in, in 2023. Uh, I think that was uh, what well, was ruled out certainly by the uh, Federal Reserve speakers. The market still entertains that to some degree, but uh, we don't believe that will happen. We think rates are going up sharply uh, and we think they'll stay at uh, you know, moderately high levels for, you know, for quite some period. Do you, do you think um, maybe market participants in general were, were caught out by just how hawkish he was and just how determined he was to signal that they are going to fight and beat inflation and get it back down to their target? I, I think the market was caught out a little bit. I don't think they should have been um, because we've had a number of Fed speakers in the previous week who all gave the same message, uh, that rates are going up, that inflation is, uh, you know, inflation is not beaten uh, as yet. You know, a slight pullback in inflation in what in the month of July does you know does not mean a you know, one swallow does make not make a summer etc. Um, hmm. So yeah, I don't think the market should have been, but the market is uh, you know, again is fascinated. They want to forecast something. They they want to look around two corners. You know, we see the first corner to look around is that rates are going up. Uh, to try and look around a second corner and say that rates are coming down again after that mm. you know, is very difficult. So try and get the first step in first. Yeah, I think in uh, in terms of context, the important thing to remember is 
uh, almost for 14 years now, um, the Fed has really watched the market very carefully and tried to ensure that the markets don't correct one way or the other. And, you know, that's why the famous Fed put has, has come about. But actually, uh, what's I think what's been signaled by the Fed is, you know, those times are gone and we wouldn't be taking our lead from the necessarily from the markets anymore, but we'll we'll be watching the economic data and then specifically with regard to inflation, focusing on inflation. So that that message had to be given. I think it's, uh, you know, the market fooled itself into thinking that oh, we can always bully the Fed into doing what we want <laughs> to do. I think that's where the difference comes. Well, what was interesting was Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. He said he was happy the stock market declined sharply on Friday. He said... Investors hadn't fully appreciated the Fed's plan to fight inflation. And he said, I was certainly not excited to see the stock market rallying after our last meeting because I know how committed we all are to getting inflation down. And I somehow think the markets were misunderstanding that. I think it's been a long time we've heard um, a Fed official say quite directly, um, or almost throwing the markets under the bus here, aren't they? That's to say the markets are not our priority. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Mr. Kashkari has been uh, probably on both on both sides, both ends of the spectrum. Uh, he was at one time, um, you know, particularly dovish, and now you know, particularly hawkish with uh, with those comments. Um, uh, look, I think that the Fed, uh, the Fed Reserve, uh, has some uh, responsibility of what is, uh, has got us to their position. Uh, while we haven't had uh, CPI, uh, uh, consumer price inflation, we've had uh, very strong asset price inflation over the mm. last uh, you know, 15 or so years as a result of uh, monetary largesse, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, trying to beat the, you know, the bogey that is uh, deflation. Um, so, yeah, look, I think it's, uh, it, it's not a great thing. It's not a great uh, comment to make. Uh, you know, the Fed is obviously trying, or not obviously, but the Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing. We think that's going to be you know, a very difficult, a very ambitious, but a very difficult target to meet. And, you know, where the stock market goes, uh, yeah, it, it shouldn't be entirely related to, uh, you know, to what's happening with uh, trying to control inflation. And just, just to give some context in terms of the, the, the monetary uh, easing that uh, the Fed has given, just to... You know, in terms of scale, just before COVID hit, uh, the the size of the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet, was three and a half trillion dollars. Mm. Uh, as of last week, it's eight and a half trillion dollars. Well. So, and and the context is that after just before the financial crisis in two thousand eight, uh, the the size of the balance sheet was one trillion. Mm. So you can just imagine it's gone eight times in the last fourteen years. So the amount of money liquidity that the Fed has brought into the markets. Um, it has been awesome. So now, you know, they have to now do something to try and ease the effects of that, which is now inflation. Well, they say you shouldn't fight the Fed. So when you have the Fed saying it wants to see U.S. equity markets lower, shouldn't you be getting out very fast? Well, I'm not sure whether the the, you know, the Fed Reserve, in, you know, in total says they want to see it lower. I I, I do. Yeah, you know, we saw the you know, uh, Mr. Kashkari's comments. Uh, you know, no doubt, but. Uh, uh, I think they're looking for economic and financial market stability, you know, not for markets to turn, uh, not for markets to turn sharply lower. So I, I think it was a, you know, I don't want to coin a phrase to say it was irresponsible, but I, I don't think it really helped. Uh, I don't think it really helps markets. Uh, I do think, though, if we look at companies, if we look at equities uh, from a broad perspective, if you raise the cost of capital, then there are some companies. Mm. Uh, you know which are going to which are going to find it more difficult. So, yeah, it is a difficult time for asset markets uh, in in general. 
but to suggest uh, you know equities, uh, you know in total or equity indexes, you know should fall, uh, you know I, I don't think it's the right path to be but, taking. But it, I think it was you know this is called for. I mean, there, there needs to be a correction, right? We all know that if you look at historically, okay, pre-financial crisis, uh, typically the interest rates have been in the range of four to six percent for fifteen years. So it, the, the, re, the recent situation we saw in terms of the massive amount of liquidity that the Fed brought in, lower interest rates, et cetera, was an aberration. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the markets fool themselves that, that, that this is the right way to do things. I mean, people are doing their return on investment kind of calculations at 1%, 2% cost of capital, which doesn't work. So I think there's going to be a reality check for a lot of businesses. Uh, but at the same time, it will also open up opportunities for investment for a lot of people. People who have been have money sitting in savings accounts, for example, earning nothing, can now deploy it into mm. into deposits, CDs, etc. So, at the end, the, the the economy needs to adjust and will adjust. I think it's good, though, isn't it? This new environment because it means now that money is no longer free. It doesn't go into projects that really it should never have gone into in the first place or got into companies that it should never have gone to. You've got to really think about more where you do invest and where you're going to get a return. Well, that's absolutely right. We can think about you know the, the special purchase, uh, the special uh, purpose vehicles, uh, etc. But mm-hmm. yeah, look, money was free, but uh, wasn't free to everyone. Uh, you know, people's credit card uh, credit card uh, interest rates didn't come down uh, mm-hmm. during this period. Um, so it was a, a fact that banks had money um, you know, through the Federal Reserve System and other major central banks around the world. Uh, but the people that wanted to people that wanted to lend to didn't need to borrow it. Uh, the people that wanted to borrow it weren't, weren't able to. So there's been a, a real uh, disintegration uh, you know, in the banking system. And yes, I you know, agree with uh, you know, Senor's comments that you know, this is a correction that we have to have. You know, this is a, a rationalisation. Uh, perhaps more correctly that we have to have, and and so there will be companies which are not going to do as well, uh, where you know, liquidity or, or rather your money has been cheap, and so that it has uh, created uh, value where where really value doesn't exist in in the long run. So, yeah, I think this process is going to take some time. Uh, that's why you know we believe that rates are going to be up for some time, are going to stay up for for quite some period. So the working out of this is, you know, we measure in uh, you know one to two years, not in a you know not in a few months. So then what do you make of the bond market reaction? Initially, the bond market was very calm, wasn't it? Certainly on Friday, although yields now moving up today. And it looks like that 10-year now is is sort of firmly above that 3% um, sort of level. The other thing also that the Fed has achieved is that real yields are now in positive territory across the whole um, of of the yield curve, which I presume they're, they're pleased about. Yeah, I mean, I think initially the bond market probably was was not sure whether it was he was just paying lip service or not, and you know, the, the, over the weekend when they saw follow through comments by the ECB as well as uh, some of the Asian central banks, then they realised that all the central banks are coordinated in this approach, and so you saw the the, the reaction taking place. Um, I think it's something that. Um, you know, was required, and then it, now people will, will make rational investment decisions. So um, it's not something which, um, in, a, in the long run, is going to be negative. Tell me a bit about what this means for Hong Kong and Chinese markets. It's clear we're going to have rates on an upward slope for, for quite a considerable period of time. They're not going to come down until um, the inflation comes down considerably. What does this mean for China, which is sort of almost going on the opposite direction, isn't it? What it is, I mean, for, for Hong Kong specifically, the cost of capital is going up. Uh, 
uh, because of the uh, you know the, the currency board uh, system uh, for China. Yes, uh, they they have the policy levers are in you know full forward or, or nearly full forward, and uh, you know, liquidity is being added and uh, and rates are being uh, less. Uh, and and we have seen some outperformance of uh, of Chinese uh, equity markets uh, versus some uh, uh, versus some other developed markets. Uh, also, the same in Asia. Uh, so if I can you know, drag it into it, uh, the Nikkei has been one of the best performing uh, equity markets, uh, major equity markets in the globe this year because interest rates here are cheap and the currency has been cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, so if your asset markets, uh, your interest rates and your currency is able to adjust. Uh, then some asset markets can, uh, you know, can perform on a on a better uh, on a better stage. Uh, for Hong Kong, uh, the currency board system, one of the price of that is uh, asset price volatility, uh, and we're seeing that now through a higher cost of capital. Yeah, I think there's a word in talking about China. There's a word that was used quite often in the past, and people don't talk about it, which is decoupling. So I think it was used uh, quite often earlier, but now we're seeing real decoupling, right? You see mm. the interest rates uh, in the rest of the world going up and interest, interest rates in, in China coming down. Um, so, you know, they have local challenges um, and they have to deal with them, I think, in the context of the domestic economy. Um, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, yes, uh, you know, the, the peg is is definitely now under pressure uh, because the economy is not doing well, yet the... the, the um, HKMA has to increase interest rates, um, and so there'll be there'll be some challenges here. And it's now starting to impact the property market, as we saw from those uh, that house price index from the ratings and valuation department earlier. Yeah, indeed, and uh, and also in terms of consumer spending, right? You could have mm. that. So, I think um, it's it's going to be a challenge, and and what you may see is some some amount of fiscal measures to try and um, offset the impact of higher interest rates. What does it mean for the Chinese currency, the yuan? We've seen it slide now to two-year um, lows. Um, the PBOC is obviously trying to push back a bit against that um, with, its, with its fixing, but nevertheless, what does it mean overall for the currency? Well, yes, the currency is, uh, as you say, a two-year low, but the, the dollar at a 20-year a high. Um, so the Chinese yuan has actually outperformed a number of other major currencies um, over the last... Uh, Six or, or, or six months, or certainly year to date, and certainly on mm. a longer period as well. So, yeah, I think we need to look at where the dollar is, and uh, not just you know, focus on just where you know, we're at six ninety or, or whatever we might be, uh, you know, this morning. Uh, stability, though, is uh, is a watchword for the uh, Chinese monetary authorities. And yes, you mentioned you know, some pushback on the pace of declines uh, and the concern about uh, about capital outflow. If we'd been sitting here a year ago, we would have talked about you know, portfolio inflow into China, you know, accessing uh, the bond market. Well, that hasn't uh, uh, that that's dried up uh, because of higher interest rates offshore. So, yeah, it's a uh, walking a little bit of a tightrope, I think, for the uh, for the monetary authorities here. But I don't look at it as being you know outright uh, weak or or, or in a, a precipitous decline at this point. Sunil, in some ways, I mean, it's a bit odd, isn't it, the weakness in the yuan? I suppose it's it's justified by the interest rate differential, but at the same time, China has a very big trade surplus, which normally helps support the other uh, currency. Yeah, but I think it's it's interest rate differential, and also, you know, the worry about capital outflows. Um, so, it's it's a normal reaction. Also, the con con confidence in the local economy is, is a problem. Mm. So. I think it's a culmination of a lot of factors, all driven by the the, the local e economy.
Do you see, where, where do we find some optimism about China? There's a lot of negative data um, coming out, economic data. We had that business survey from the US-China Business Council. We've got the PMI data coming later this week. Um, where do where should we look for signs of a turnaround in the economy? Yeah, you mentioned it actually. It's surplus, right? So from a, from an export point of view, the Chinese exports are still doing well. So the rest of the world will still be there as a market for China, uh, but it's got to sort out its internal issues. Um, so what you have is right now a crisis of confidence in the domestic economy, mm. uh, and so the the export economy is still doing well. Um, so that's that's a positive. Yeah, look, I, I was surprised earlier that in the uh, in the comments about Chinese business confidence that, that the property sector was not one that was mentioned. Uh, you know, I'm sure it is, uh, you know, a concern for, uh, for the for consumers. Uh, certainly, and they're going to take some time to work out. Uh, I think the capacity of uh, monetary authorities to be able to ease policy during this time, I think, is uh, uh, you know, is some reason for. Uh, perhaps not confidence, but at least optimism that they're able to, uh, you know, provide some tools to, you know, to backstop the economy from now. You need to remember, mm. yes, we're slowing. We're not likely to reach the the GDP targets this year, but you know, we're not in a contractionary point. At, you know, we're not in a correct contractionary stage at this point. But as uh, you know, to Sunil's point, this decoupling is, uh, you know, is uh, is quite clear at this stage, and I think it's going to take some time to we'll be back on a, you know, a, a coordinated path. Well, thank you for your thoughts this morning. You heard there Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets, Sunil Kashap, who's director at FinMet. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-four on the phone from Tokyo is John Byrne, vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So what were your takeaways from Jerome Powell at Jackson Hole in terms of Japan and what it means for Japanese economy, Japanese markets? Yes, well, I, I think we can clearly see that the, the Fed has affirmed its stance on inflation, um, and this is clearly contributing to a, a widening in the interest rate differentials between the US and Japan, and therefore the depreciation of, of the yen ha, is on the way again, uh, despite what has happened in uh, the weeks before uh, Jackson Hole, where we saw some reversion of this depreciation, actually uh, an, an appreciation uh, during that period. But now we're, we're clearly back to a, a depreciating yen, uh, more closer towards the, the 140 level, in fact. It causes a problem, doesn't it, if you want to be an investor into Japan, into Japanese equities, for example, because you've really got to hedge the currency risk, which isn't a cheap thing to do. That's right. I mean, I think one of the outcomes of uh, Jackson Hole was a decline in stocks, not only in Japan, but but globally. Um, and the, the situation with the yen, it, it's, it's really about the uncertainty that it uh, creates, and this, this can cause uh, certainly problems uh, in financial markets um, because, of course, when uncertainty is high, volatility is high, um, and this can also put pressure on the central bank in terms of its um, policy objectives um, in the case of Japan specifically. Well, it's, I was going to mention that because it's clearly in a bit of a hole now, isn't it? Because it's got rising interest rates globally. It wasn't just the Fed. The ECB uh, is now talking about a 75 basis point rate rise uh, in September, um, and also inflation in Japan is now above 
uh, the Bank of Japan's target for, what, the third, fourth consecutive month. So they've got a problem, haven't they? Well, I mean, the, the, the issue in Japan is that um, it's still viewed te- sort of transitory. So um, w- when the external price pressures uh, dissipate at some point, it's believed that, um, you know, the inflation rate will decline substantially. And essentially, the domestic demand is at, at a level um, which is not uh, pushing prices. So the, the, the price pressure is coming from the external side. Mm. Um, and that's the problem the, the central bank faces essentially is that uh, looking uh, down the line and looking at inflation expectations there, there's no real uh, rationale for for tightening monetary policy on that regard however it's also important to take into account the effects of the yen um, and the, the pressure that this puts on the yield curve control policy uh, we saw i think uh, in june july that uh, there was a real test of of the yield curve control policy by by hedge funds um, the, the bank had to purchase substantial amounts of government bonds in order to ease this pressure and maintain the policy. But I think going forward, uh, you know, extreme pressure on the yen and some further uh, rise in interest rates abroad could, could test this policy further. I mean, it's, is the Bank of Japan just making the same mistake as the Fed and other central banks by sticking with this idea that it's got inflation, it's moving up, but it's transitory? That was a, a pretty disastrous stance for the Fed to take, wasn't it? Well, there's different dynamics at play in Japan versus uh, elsewhere, such as in the US. In the US, there's a clear impact of um, developments on uh, inflation expectations. So there are second round effects, in particular to, to wages uh, abroad. We don't see that dy- dynamic in Japan. So the, the, the justification for an increase in the interest rate is not there due to that lack of pass-through of prices uh, along the curve, as well as uh, through to, to wages. Now, on a different topic, um, let me have your thoughts on uh, Fumio Kishida's announcement last week that the country should return to, to nuclear power for the first time since the Fukushima uh, crisis. How significant is this going to be for the economy? Yeah, well, I think that one of the lessons learned from the Ukraine situation was that the Japanese economy is highly dependent on its imports of energy. Um, and one of the reasons for this new um, shift in policy towards nuclear is to reduce concentration risk um, from abroad. Um, and, you know, I think even though oil prices have dropped down to below $100 per barrel in recent, uh, in recent weeks, there's still a lot of pressure on um, the, the Japanese trade deficit. And this is also compounding the effect on the, effect on the Japanese yen. So there's a real need to, to look at alternative ways to uh, source energy supply. And that really underlies the, the, uh, the, the, the shift in policy in that regard. John, thank you, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. That's John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in the markets in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is moving up by about half a percent. Smaller rise of about a third of a percent down in Australia for the ASX 200. The Cosby in South Korea has risen 0.6%. Uh, looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng, though, in about an hour's time.
I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Do please join me then. Coming up after the news, uh, it's Back Chats with Jim Gordon at Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today are uh, going to be sunny periods, a few showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day, maximum temperature of about 33 degrees. going to be very hot for the rest of the week as well. The very hot weather warning is in force. 29 degrees right now, 83% relative humidity. 8.30 and a half. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The Education Bureau is asking teachers and students to test themselves for COVID-19 for the next two days before local schools resume classes on Thursday. An infectious disease specialist, Wilson Lamb, welcomed the idea, saying some infections could be picked up before students return to campuses. It's very important for them to perform regular RAT again because uh, once introduced into the, the school place, it would be quite difficult to limit the spread given the difficulty of kids, especially smaller kids, to observe all the infection control practices. So I think doing the RAT two days before resuming school would be beneficial to pick up some of these cases which have actually acquired infections one or two days ago. The Ukrainian military says its long-awaited southern offensive has begun. It says the army has broken through the first line of Russian defense around the main city of Kherson, with its proxy militias retreating and their supporting Russian paratroopers fleeing. In the preceding weeks, Ukraine has been pummeling key bridges across the Dnieper River and ammunition dumps with high-precision HIMARS rockets. Natalia Gomenyuk is the Ukrainian Southern Army spokeswoman. There is news. It inspired everyone. Ammunition depots, military equipment, air defense installations were destroyed. All this weakened the enemy. But we realize the enemy is powerful. It's too early to relax. Acknowledging the offensive, Russia's defense ministry claimed it was a spectacular failure. Pakistan's finance minister says the International Monetary Fund has approved a $1.17 billion loan for the country. Mifta Ismail thanked his Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif for taking what he said were tough decisions and saving Pakistan from default. The IMF loan is a crucial lifeline for Pakistan's struggling economy, which is now having to bear the brunt of devastating floods. Iraqi medical sources say that 12 people have been killed and more than 80 others injured in clashes in the highly protected green zone in Baghdad. The violence comes after hundreds of supporters of the powerful Shia cleric Muqtada al-Sadr stormed the presidential palace following an announcement from their leader that he was withdrawing from politics. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. These are serious clashes. We haven't seen something like this in Baghdad for some time. And the latest that I'm hearing is that the streets are relatively quiet and then there's intermittent gunfire, but that doesn't mean in any sense that this is over. I mean, this is the latest escalation in the long political showdown. And the announcement earlier today by Muqtada al-Sada that he was his final retirement, he called it, from politics, seems to have been the trigger for this. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today or guest presenter is uh, Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, plans to strengthen laws against animal cruelty. A bill to amend the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Ordinance will go before the Legislative Council uh, later this year. 
The proposals include increasing penalties and imposing a duty of care on owners, meaning they may be penalised if they fail to keep their pets in good health. They'll have to let them exercise regularly, take sick pets to the vet and have them vaccinated. Authorities are also considering making it mandatory for all cats sold by animal traders to be microchipped. But some prominent uh, campaigners have argued that more safeguards should also be extended to animals on farms and in slaughterhouses and markets. After 9.15 this morning, we'll hear about calls to improve conditions for workers at uh, refuse collection points amid the current period of very hot weather.